I invite you to take your copy of God's Holy Word and open it to the book of the Revelation, the last book in the New Testament, chapter 2. Tonight we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 7 in a message I've entitled, Ephesus, the church that left her first love. I want to read for you this section of Scripture beginning in verse 1. We're in Revelation chapter 2, beginning with verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, says this, I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance and that you cannot tolerate evil men. And you put to the test those who call themselves apostles, and they are not, and you found them to be false. And you have perseverance, and have endured for my name's sake, and have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen. And repent and do the deeds you did at first, or else I'm coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place, unless you repent. Yet this you do have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to him who overcomes... I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Some of the saddest words ever spoken are, I don't love you like I used to. Think about the pain of hearing those words. Can you imagine having someone that you love with all your heart turn to you and say that the love that once characterized the relationship has slowly but surely faded. Unfortunately, many churches, if they are honest, would have to say to the Lord Jesus, we don't love you the way we used to. Such was the case with the church at Ephesus, a congregation that once had a vibrant, radiant love for Jesus Christ had allowed their love to grow cold. The church at Ephesus was the first of seven churches Jesus addressed through the Apostle John in the book of Revelation. These churches were located throughout Asia Minor. Five of the seven churches had to be confronted because they had allowed sin to infiltrate their congregations. The only two churches not to be rebuked by the Lord were Smyrna and Philadelphia. You do not need to study these churches for very long until you realize that the individual characteristics of each of these churches are present with us today. Every Christian and every church can be placed into the category of one of these seven churches. Certainly, one of the most common representatives of these churches in our day is the church at Ephesus. There are many Christians and churches across America that could describe themselves as having left their first love. They bear those characteristics. Let me ask you a question as an individual. What about your life? What about you? Have you left your first love? Are you as passionate and loving toward Christ as you used to be? Now that's a very sobering question. And it's one that we need to ask of ourselves. We need to ask it of ourselves as individuals and we need to ask it of ourselves as a church. If we're deadly honest, we would have to admit that we have allowed our love in many respects for Christ to wither. 
If this is true in your life, if this is true in our church's life, what we need to experience is what the Bible calls revival. We need a reviving of our love for Christ. You will notice that each of these letters follows a similar pattern. For this reason, I will be using the same basic pattern in our study of each of these seven churches. Now, as we turn to Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, we begin to see an example of a church that left her first love. Just like the church at Ephesus, we must learn what we need to do when our love for God grows cold. Now, we begin tonight by looking at this church more closely, the examination of the church at Ephesus. We begin this process in verse 1. Let me read it for you once again. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write. Notice, first of all, we read to the angel. You've heard me say in recent weeks that the term angel means messenger. And we've talked about how that we believe that this is a reference to the messengers of the churches, which would be the pastors. And what would happen is the, the letter would go in a circular route to these seven churches. And each church had a letter within the book of the Revelation. And the pastor would receive that letter. And it would be his responsibility to present that message to the churches. You know, that's still the responsibility of the pastor, isn't it? It's true that the pastor has a responsibility to proclaim the message of God to the people. Now, there are many things a pastor can do, but there's only one thing he must do. He must preach the truth. We have in our country today a great need for the preaching of the Word of God. We, we need people who will boldly stand and preach the truth of God's Word. It's as if there is a drought in our country today of Bible preaching, and we need a resurgence of that preaching. No wonder there are many of our churches that are floundering. It's because, in large part, the pastors are not preaching to the people the Word of God. We like to take polls and determine what the people like and what they want to hear. We like to tell stories and psychoanalyze. But the greatest need in the church of America today is a return to the preaching of the Word of God and the power of the Spirit of God. And that's the responsibility of the pastor. And I must say, as I read this text here, and I see, once again, I'm reminded that the angel, the pastors are referred to as the angel of the church. I'm not called an angel very often, so it's an encouragement to me, let me say that. So this is written now to the angel of the church in Ephesus. Now let's look a little closer at the church in Ephesus. In A.D. 50... Priscilla and Aquila introduced Christianity to this church, or to, I should say to this city, the city of Ephesus. And when you begin to think about how the church began with Aquila and Priscilla, uh, it, it just reminds you of the stout leadership that this church had. I mean, if you, if you wanted to create a who's who's list of church leaders, this church had a tremendous advantage in that they had some of the greatest leaders in the early church. As I mentioned, these two, Priscilla and Aquila. But also we find that Apollos preached at Ephesus. He was known for being an eloquent preacher and well-loved by the uh, people who heard him. Paul established a resident ministry there in 52 A.D., And we can read about his ministry that lasted three years in the book of Acts, chapters 19 and 20. His understudy, Timothy, pastored in Ephesus after Paul left. He was a young, vibrant preacher. He had learned from the apostle Paul. 
Paul had discipled him and encouraged him and trained him and put him to service. Onesphorus and Tychicus also ministered in Ephesus, two great leaders as well. Before the apostle John was exiled to the Isle of Patmos, he ministered in Ephesus for several decades. As you can see, they had wonderful leaders. So this church was strong from a doctrinal perspective. They had been trained, they had been prepared, and they were engaged in service. So this was a wonderful church in this area. It was a bright light shining in the midst of the darkness, as every church should be. Now let's look at the city. Here again, verse 1, to the angel of the church in Ephesus. Ephesus is the city located at the mouth of the Clayster River. It was the best seaport in the province of Asia. The estimated population was around 300,000 people. So this is not a small town. This is a large city. It was a cultural city that had a 25,000 seat theater. Ephesus was at the junction of four of the main roads running through Asia Minor. So it was strategically located for commerce. The city was the location for the temple Artemis. That's the Greek term. Or Diana, which is the Roman term. Uh, this, uh, this temple was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. The temple housed a multi-breasted image of the false god that they worshipped there. And it was characterized by gross immorality. So that gives you some idea of what was happening in the city. But then we turn and we see here in this passage, the Bible speaks about the Lord. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write. Now this is given to the people of God from God himself through his servant John. He says, as we continue to read, to the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, says this. Notice how the Lord is described here. The one who holds the seven stars in his right hand. The letter to each of the first five churches contains a reference to Christ taken from the description given in the first vision recorded in chapter 1, verses 12 through 16. This reference pictures Christ holding the seven pastors in his strong right hand. He has them securely protected there. He's demonstrating his authority and power in his churches. We also read the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands says this. He is walking among the seven churches. This phrase is to remind the readers that Christ, wearing his priestly robe, is present in the churches. With his word, he is purifying his churches and protecting them from outside and inside dangers. Now, this is very important. You have to visualize this, that Christ is holding the pastors in his strong right hand as he walks among the seven churches. If you recall, we talked about that number seven, meaning completion or fullness and that there were more churches in that area than just seven. So this is a, rep a representation not just of the seven churches here, but all the churches in that area. And I think even us today that Christ is walking among his people. And he is purifying them with his word. He's protecting them with his word against the evil forces that are at play. So here we see an examination of the church. Then we move, notice if you would, in verse 2 to the evaluation of the church. 
Look with me in verse 2. I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance and that you cannot tolerate evil men. And you put to the test those who call themselves apostles and they are not. And you found them to be false. And you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake. And have not grown weary. But I have this against you. That you have left your first love. He also says in verse 6. Yet this you do have that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans which I also hate. Here he's evaluating, notice, he's evaluating the church at Ephesus. We are Georgia Baptists. We're part of the Georgia Baptist Convention. We call now the Georgia Baptist Mission Board. And every year we send in data to the Georgia Baptist Mission Board. And they collect it and put it in a book of reports. And we can get that book and see what every church that turns in that data is doing. It will have information like, for example, how many you have enrolled in Sunday school. What's your Sunday school attendance? How many you have involved in discipleship? What's the attendance? How many involved in music ministry? How much do you give to the cooperative program? What's your overall giving to the church? So there's a lot of data that is contained in that report. This information shows various categories that are important to the church's health. This report reveals the yearly progress of every church. More importantly, God also has a book of reports. He is very aware of the health status of every one of his churches. For example, in this passage, God essentially gives a report card of the church at Ephesus. Now, what I want us to do is to look at their report card. You remember when you used to receive those report cards? Some of you students still do. Don't you enjoy that time when you have to take the report card to your parents? You're always happy to give it to them when the grades are good. But when there's something written in that report card that's not very flattering, you're not eager for your parents to see it. Is that not true? Can I get a witness? Some of you can remember those days. Isn't that true? Well, here, let's look at this report card. The first area of evaluation would be an evaluation of deeds. Write that down. An evaluation of deeds. Going back to verse 2. Here, Christ says, I know your deeds. Now, this word know means Complete and full knowledge. In other words, there's nothing about your deeds that I'm not aware of. I know everything about your deeds. There's nothing hidden. There's nothing that you swept under the rug that I don't see. I've done a complete and thorough investigation. I know fully everything about you. He says, I know your deeds. And he lists here a number of their deeds. First of all, he talks about their toil. You see it here? I know your deeds and your toil. You see the word toil? It means labor to the point of sweat and exhaustion. He's actually commending them for their toil. They were workers. They did not mind getting their hands dirty in ministry. Whatever need to be done, they said, we will do it. Do you need some chairs moved? We'll be there. Do you need the church fixed? We will fix it. Do you need an usher or a greeter? We'll do it. Do you need a teacher? We'll take that class. These people were willing and eager to be involved in service. And that's a commendable thing. And it was not just that they did it occasionally or half-heartedly. These people worked for the Lord to the point of physical exhaustion. They were a committed group of people. And it's commended 
As Christ examines their deeds, he finds that their deeds are filled with toil, labor for him, and he's pleased. He also mentions perseverance. Notice with me, he says, I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance. That word perseverance means patient in times of difficulty. How many of you know that the Christian life is not a piece of cake? How many of you know that living as a Christian is not easy? It does not mean that if you become a Christian, you are immune from trouble. And you'll have no more difficulty in life. That simply is not taught in the Bible. And anybody that tells you different is not using the Bible as their source of information. As a matter of fact, the Bible says in this world, you will have tribulation. But be of good cheer, Jesus said, I've overcome the world. In this world, we are going to have difficulties and struggles and hardships and disappointments and trials and afflictions and adversity. That's a part of being in this fallen world in which we live. But the good news is we can persevere through these times of trouble. And that's what they did. Through difficult situations that arose, they persevered. Their faith was strong. They kept their eyes on Jesus and they kept marching forward. When a difficulty would arise, they would face it. They would Get it behind them and they would move on. So here Christ is commending their perseverance. Their deeds are spectacular. Then notice also he says that they had no tolerance for evil. The last part of verse 2 or or reading on down in verse 2. He says, I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance and that you cannot tolerate evil men. No tolerance for evil means that they were separated unto holiness. Now this is something that you rarely hear preached in our churches anymore about being separated from the world. One of the greatest problems we have in the church today is that we have become more like the world. We're warned throughout scriptures about this problem. How that we have to be very careful that the world does not press us into its mold according to its standard. We're warned not to love this world nor the things of this world. And we as Christians have this struggle daily. Uh, I was talking recently with my wife. I mentioned this in one of our services this morning. We talked about in particular students. There's some of you students here tonight, and I really feel for you because I know you are facing intense pressure. Peer pressure is enormous. Now, there's always been peer pressure from the standpoint of a negative impact. But I think today it's even more so a problem. We know that you are facing these problems, and you look out, and it seems that All the young people are doing something contrary to what you believe is true. What you've been taught is true. And you begin to wonder, is it really worth it to live for Jesus? I mean, I'm the only one. I'm the only one left. Is it really worth the sacrifice to do the right thing? Well, these people felt that pressure from this idolatrous environment in which they lived yet they did not tolerate evil they sought to separate themselves unto God for the purpose of being holy unto him you know the Bible says that we've been called to holiness the Bible says be ye holy as I am holy now there's no way we can be holy in and of ourselves I'm thankful that when we accept Christ as our Savior, we are declared righteous by God. We're declared to be holy by virtue of our relationship with Christ. But that doesn't mean from a practical standpoint that we always live a holy life. That's what God is doing when he begins to change us and and, uh, conform us to himself, to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are being changed. We're being transformed into the very likeness of the Son of God. 
And you can't be transformed into the likeness of Christ without becoming holy in practice. We're not talking about a self-righteous behavior where we, we try to, with all of our might, do what's right. No, I'm talking about a yieldedness daily to the Lord where we are conforming ourselves by virtue of our our yielded will to the leadership of the Holy Spirit as we are informed by the Word of God to do so. And in doing that, we become holy in our position and in our practice. And with that holiness, we begin to see a distinction between us and the world. And when people see us, they do not see people who are just like they are. They see someone who is a representative of Christ. And so to you students and to all of us, when we bear the image of Christ and when we're becoming more like him, then we serve as a contrast to those who are lost and in desperate need of life transformation. They see Christ in us and they begin to wonder, what's different about that person? Why is she different from me? Why is he acting differently or living differently? And how is it he has a different perspective on life? And it begins to whet their appetite. They begin to ask questions and it gives us an opportunity then to point them to Christ. Well, that is what exactly happened here in the church at Ephesus. When you evaluate their deeds, you see that they score very high. Notice also as we read, look with me if you would in verse 3. And you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary. These are people who endured hardship and trial, yet they were perseverant. And they withstood the difficulty. They did not grow weary under the weight and burden of the struggle because they had their eyes on Jesus, the author and the finisher of their faith. They received that strength and motivation they needed to continue on in difficult times. So they are commended. Now as we look at their score on the report card, what do they get as their deeds are evaluated? Well, they get an A+. Spectacular. They would be pleased for us to see their report card. They would be pleased for Christ to see it as he does. But that's not the only area of evaluation. There's another area. Notice there's an evaluation of doctrine. An evaluation of doctrine. Let's go back to verse 2, the second part of that verse. And here's what we read. And you put to the test those who call themselves apostles. Notice that, those who call themselves apostles. God doesn't call them apostles. These are self-appointed apostles. And we have some of those today, by the way. He says, those who call themselves apostles, and they are not. And you found them to be false. Look at verse 6. Yet this you do have, that you hate the deeds of Nicolaitans, which I also hate. What is he doing here? Well, in verse 2, he talks about how that they were discerning. And they identified dangers facing the church. Doctrinal dangers. The first danger came from within the church. Through these self-appointed apostles, these were false apostles. And what the, the church at Ephesus did, having been taught by these great leaders the truth and given good lessons on what to believe and, and what the truth was, they were able to take that knowledge and evaluate those who said something contrary to the truth and spot them as false. This rose up from within. You have to be careful. And that's one of the roles of the pastor. Is to make sure that the church is walking in doctrinal soundness. And that the word of God is being preached. And that every aspect of the teaching and preaching in the church is doctrinally sound. 
And that's what they did. They identified this as a danger from within. But also they saw the danger from without as referred to in verse 6 as the Nicolaitans. Now we really don't know who the Nicolaitans were. Some suggest that it was a group of people. That the Nicolaitans were following a man by the name of Nicholas. And that he had departed from the faith. And that he had influenced other people to follow him. And they realized that this being a a, a belief system that existed outside of the church. That had influence potentially on the church. They spotted it and they called it out just the way they should deal with that threat. So they were able to discern Threats from within the church doctrinally and threats from outside the church doctrinally. And Paul had warned this church of this threat. We find over in the book of Acts, for example, chapter 20. Let me read for you verses 28 through 31. Now keep in mind the context here is the apostle Paul has been with the church at Ephesus for three years. But he's about to leave. His heart is breaking. Because he loved these people. And they loved him. And they walk down to the boat where he is about to leave. And and they're all weeping. They're hugging his neck. They loved him dearly. And he's giving them some warnings here. And he says, be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock. Among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. To shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise, speaking perverse things, to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be on the alert. A very strong warning by the Apostle Paul, and he was exactly right. A threat from without and a threat from within was posed on the church, and they, because of their strong doctrinal understanding, were able to address it. They had discipline with them because they were doctrinally sound we live in a day where doctrine is downplayed where people say well it really doesn't matter what you believe friend it matters a great deal what you believe because here's why what you believe will ultimately be demonstrated through your behavior what you believe will ultimately be demonstrated through your behavior and that's why it's so important that we as God's people be doctrinally sound that we know the truth that we study the scriptures in detail and make notes and seek to apply the word of God to our lives so that we can be strong and identify any threat from within or without as we look at their report card Under the area of evaluation of doctrine, what do we find? We find that they receive an A+. They can be commended because they have sound doctrine, A+. But that's not the only area of evaluation. There is a third area, and that is found in verse 4. It's an evaluation of their devotion. Let me read verse 4 for you. Christ says, But I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Here he gets at the heart of the problem. Their devotion to Christ had begun to wane. Their hearts Toward God were growing cold. And Christ sees it. He knows it. He confronts it. And herein lies the heart of the problem. 
when it came to their hands, they had hands involved in ministry, working hard, toiling for the Lord. When it came to their head, they had a good knowledge of the truth. They were strong doctrinally. But when it came to their heart, their heart had grown cold toward God. Does that sound familiar to you? As an individual or as a church, have you grown cold toward God? Has there been a time in your life where your love for the Lord was greater than it is right now? If so, then you are in need of revival. You're in need of revival. Our doctrine is important. Our deeds are important. But if our devotion is not what it should be, it won't be long until those other areas begin to suffer as well. Our love relationship with the Lord must be kindled. And we must flame, we must, uh, we must uh, uh, fan the flame of our love for the Lord so that it will grow and, and get stronger. Just like any other relationship, think about the relationship with your husband or your wife. You have to spend time investing in that relationship or your love for your spouse will grow cold and it will create problems in the relationship. Your fellowship will not be what it should be. And if we neglect our devotional lives to the Lord where we express love to him, and uh, we fail to get into his word and seek his face and go to the Lord in prayer and be among God's people, learning of him and worshiping him with, with spirit and in truth, then it won't be long until our hearts will be just like those of the Ephesians in this passage. They will grow cold toward the things of God. How many of you have in your home a three-legged stool? Anybody? A three-legged stool. You know what a three-legged stool is, don't you? A three-legged stool is a, is a stool that obviously has how many legs? Three. You're a very intelligent group of people. That stool has to have each of those legs to be usable. You take away any one of those legs, what happens to the stool? It will fall. If you sit on a stool that has only two legs, you're going to fall on the floor. Three legs of a three-legged stool, each leg is important to the stool. Here in this passage, we see the three-legged stool being evaluated. The three-legged stool in this passage would include deeds, doctrine, and devotion. All three are important. And this evaluation finds the deeds were spectacular, A+. The doctrine, sound, A+. The devotion, stale, F. They failed the test. One of the legs of that three-legged stool was missing. And it caused a collapse. Friend, this is a very serious problem for this church. The evaluation should have startled these people. It should sober them. And it should us as well as we learn by way of application to look at these three areas of our lives. Our deeds, our doctrine, our devotion to make sure they are where they should be. And then notice the expectations of the church. What did Christ expect of this church? Well, it's clearly outlined in this passage in verse 5. He expected them to remember. This is the remedy. This is what they needed to do to correct the problem. This is how they could reattach that leg that was missing from the stool. Verse 5. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen. Remember. Regularly, we take the Lord's Supper here so that we can do what? 
remember. Stirs our thoughts. It reminds us of what Christ has done for us and our relationship to him. It is essential that we remember how God has saved us. How he has changed us. How he is transforming us. Who we are in Christ Jesus and what we have in store for us ahead. If we fail to remember these things, our hearts will grow cold. We need to stir up our memory. Remember what you used to do when you first got saved. You wanted to invite everybody you knew. All your friends and neighbors and family members. You wanted to tell them, hey, we want you to come with us to church. Christ has changed my life. You couldn't wait to get here to sing those songs. You love to hear the word of God being preached. And you would serve anywhere. It didn't matter if it was cleaning out the closet or taking out the trash. You wanted to do it. You wanted to be here. What about now? As the years have passed, as you've gotten into your routine... As you've you've settled down just a bit. What about your love relationship with Christ? Do you remember what it was like when you were first saved? And the excitement of that new relationship. If you're going to be where God wants you to be. You have to regularly remember what he's done. But not only remember. We're expected to repent. Look at verse 5. He says, therefore remember from where you have fallen and repent. The word repent means to have a change of mind. It, it means that you, you stop thinking the way you're thinking. And, and you begin to think differently. And that change of mind leads to a confession of sin. Where you say, Lord, I don't love you the way I used to. My heart is cold toward you. I'm spiritually dry, Lord. Lord, I know it's sinful for me to be this way. I confess it to you as sin. And I want to change. I want to be right with you, Lord. And then there is an expectation to return. Look in verse 5, he says... And do the deeds you did at first. You have to return. Remember, repent, return. What do you return to? You return to your devotion to Christ. Where you get on your face and cry out to Him and love Him. You get in His Word and you say, Lord God, speak to my heart. I'm listening. Your servant is listening. And Lord, where do you want me to serve? What do you want me to do so I can demonstrate your love through ministry, Lord? Lord, what can I give to advance your kingdom? I'll do whatever you want me to do. I will go wherever you want me to go. That's what we've been called to do. That's what this church is told to do. Remember. Remember, repent, return. A loving father or a faithful teacher always gives instructions to his children so that they can correct their failures. God does the same with his children. And then we see, notice the elimination of the church. And this is very sad. Look in verse 5. He says, or else I'm coming to you. Now this is... A final warning. When he says or else. He's serious. This is a final warning. What's the final warning? The final warning is a faded witness. Or else I'm coming to you. And I will remove your lampstand. Out of its place. Unless you repent. The lampstand represents the church. That influenced the people around them. And he says I will remove your witness. I will remove your influence. I will remove your church. 
Every day across America, churches are closing. You say, well, that'll never happen at First Baptist. That'll never happen here. A lot of churches have said that that now do not exist, including the church at Ephesus. It does not exist. God removed its lampstand because it did not correct the problem. You know, everywhere we go, we see warning labels. They're on everything these days from medicine to snack food. They're used to caution us about dangers involving the use of certain types of products. The problem is that many people ignore the warnings resulting in the possibility of serious injury or death. God has issued to us a warning about our coldness toward Him. A failure to return to our first love will certainly lead to a faded witness and a fruitless life. And finally, and I have to hurry, notice the exhortation to the church in verse 7. There's an exhortation to hear. He says, hear. Notice with me, verse 7. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He says, listen to me. Hear what I'm saying. Don't let it go in one ear and out the other. Listen. So frequently we hear the word of God and we close our Bibles and walk out and forget. We are forgetful hearers. But he says here, hear what I'm saying. And then notice there's the exhortation to heed as he says in verse 7. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. He says, I want you to hear and I want you to heed what I'm saying. Do it. And then there is hope, the exhortation of hope. And he mentions hope through the tree of life as he Notes here in verse 7, the tree of life represents eternal life. You need to know that the tree of life is mentioned in the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 2 verse 9 as well as chapter 3 verse 22. That's the earthly tree of life. But in Revelation chapter 22 verse 2, verse 14, verse 19, we see it mentioned in the New Jerusalem. The new Jerusalem, this eternal life that is granted to those who are followers of Christ. The paradise of God is a reference to heaven. And he's saying to all those who are true believers in Christ Jesus. That they are to persevere. They are to be faithful in their love for the Lord. So that they do not stumble on their way to heaven. But they remain faithful in their faith to the Lord. So important that we make sure that in the midst of our desire to do the right thing and be involved in service, that we don't lose our devotion to the Lord. There's a father and his young daughter who were great friends. They enjoyed spending time together. But the man noticed that his daughter was seemingly ignoring him. It was kind of strange. When he would ask her if she wanted to take a walk, as they customarily did, she would say, no, I'm busy. And there were other occasions where he tried to spend time with his daughter, but but she had other things to do. And this was just out of character for her. Several months passed and it came his birthday and she walks into his room and says, Dad, happy birthday. And presents to him a beautiful package. It's neatly wrapped, has a bow on top. He opens the package and he looks in the box and there are these handmade slippers. And he's amazed. He says, honey, these these are beautiful. Thank you. Where did you get them? She says, dad, I didn't buy them. I made them. Dad, that's why I've been kind of hesitant to 
to spend time going on walks and other things because I have been so busy trying to get these made before your birthday. I hope you love them. He said, honey, I do love these slippers. They're absolutely beautiful. I will enjoy them. But I want you to know I would have rather you purchased the slippers and given me your time because you're more important to me than these slippers. There's a great lesson there in that story. Sometimes we can allow our lives to be so cluttered and involved in service and ministry. And we may be right doctrinally, but we begin to go through the motions and we, we're so busy and caught up in the world that we do not spend time with Christ. Our devotion is lacking. And when that happens, friend, it won't be long till these other areas begin to slip as well. The message for tonight is for us to remember what Christ has done. To repent of our sins and our coldness toward him. And to return to the Lord. Is that what you need tonight? If so, I want you to know the Lord has lovingly confronted us with this message. Don't waste this opportunity. Father, we thank you for your love and grace in our lives. And thank you for confronting us. Lord, there's probably many of us who are not where we need to be devotionally with you. And our lives are stale spiritually. This is the opportunity for us to be renewed. I pray we will not let it pass. In Christ's name, I pray. Amen. If you're here and you need the Lord Jesus, we're going to sing a verse of, of, of this song. And I want you to come and just say, Pastor, I want to be saved. If you want to come to the altar here and pray to the Lord, would be a wonderful thing to do. Maybe you want to join this church. Come with that request. Maybe you need to be baptized. Come with that request. Whatever the Lord is saying to you tonight, don't be so eager to rush out of his presence and to lose the message. He's trying to convey, hear him and respond. Let's stand together.